0: So, um, I love the Simpsons and I know that that dates me, right? Do y'all just, people still watch the Simpsons? No. Oh, my childhood. Y'all missed out. All right. So Simpsons were amazing. I don't know if you guys are aware of like the writers who rolled through the Simpsons. Um, Conan O'Brien was a writer for the Simpsons for like a decade. Just some really funny show. Um, so there's this one, there's this one Simpsons where, Homer is um, – do you guys even know what the Simpsons are? Yeah, we know, who, we know who Homer is. Okay, so Homer's the dad, and he's searching for his daughter Lisa in downtown Springfield. And he gets on the top of this cherry picker, which is one of those trucks that goes to fix power lines. And it rolls down this hill into the river, and it's floating down the river. And Homer cries out um, this cry of desperation. I'm normally not a praying man, but if you're up there, please save me, Superman. Um, I saw this funny. Okay. So in December, 2004, um, y'all might remember this uh, 12 years ago or 11 years ago, this huge tsunami hit, um, the Indian ocean, um, around the rim of the Indian ocean and killed over 250,000 people. And over the th- the following weeks after that, newspapers and magazines were full of letters and articles asking the question, where was God in this? Uh, Good lights. Um, where, where's God in this? Where's God in this tragedy? Um, one reporter wrote this. He said, if God is God, he's not good. If God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian catastrophe. Right? He said, if God is God, he's not good. And if God is good, he's, he's not God. Right? He's looking at this tragedy. And he's saying that this doesn't match up. Um, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis describes that he had originally rejected the idea of God because of the cruelty of life, because of experience of how cruel life actually is. And then he actually goes later to say that his atheism um, didn't actually defend that, and that's actually what drove him around back uh, to theism. So some of us ask this question explicitly, right? We we ask this question, is God good? Or how can God be good um, when uh, this tragedy has happened in my life, when I've experienced this particular trauma? Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Um, some of us ask this question explicitly by saying, how can God be good when I experience um, all this shame? I just feel loads and loads of shame in my life. How can, be God, how can God be good when I'm um, just overwhelmed with life? Um, my experience of life is not free and joyful in the things that I long for. God, there's no way God can be good. Um, Or how can God be good when there is seeming incoherence in the world around me? Things just don't make sense in the way that the world works. How can God be good when the people who claim that he's good, namely Christians, are actually really judgmental sometimes and uh, without joy? So some of us are asking these questions explicitly, um, and many of us actually don't know that we're asking this question. Um, some of you all know this about Mary Clark and I, but um, we had a tragedy this past week. On Thursday night, her parents' house caught fire. Um, and everyone's safe, but uh, her, her mom and dad ran out of the house um, Thursday morning at 4 a.m. They had like three minutes by the time that the smoke alarm went off to when they got out. They got out just with their clothes on their backs. And so Mary Clark actually went back uh, to her parents' home this weekend and was um, helping them d- dig through the ashes, um, right? This, this tragedy strikes. We, we're still in shock about it. Um, uh, it just, um, um, and as as we talked about it and prayed about it, um, I continue to tell myself true things about who God is and what he's doing, right? Our prayers was that Jesus would use this uh, to—we to, know it's going to give his, her parents a restart materially, but praying that it would be used—Jesus would use it to give them a restart spiritually, right? That God can use this um, for his glory and for their good. Um, and yet, like a smudge on a pair of glasses, the question, is God good— subtly began to cloud my vision a little bit this weekend. Now, I didn't explicitly ask this question, but um, and I actually didn't even know that I was asking it, but it had crept in, and I had started to believe the lie that God is not good. So what do we do with this question, is God good? Um, what do we do with this question? How can God be good when everything points to the opposite? Well, we're not the first people to ask this question, um, and this is what we're going to take up in our our scripture reading today we're going to read psalm 132 um, this is printed on the back of your red uh, handout um, and i'm going to read this for us this is psalm 132 it's a song of ascents. remember O lord in david's favor all the hardships he endured how he swore to the lord and vowed to the mighty one of jacob I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathath. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you for your word to us, and we pray now that you would help us to make sense of it um, and to see how you answer our questions um, in it and through yourself. Do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To give you some some context for this psalm, this semester we've been reading the Songs of Ascent together, which is this mini collection of psalms in the larger psalms. There's 150 psalms, and there's 15 Songs of Ascent. And they were the prayer book that... um, the people of Israel used as is they journeyed three times a year up to Jerusalem. They would go up to Jerusalem for the three major feast days, for uh, the Day of Atonement, um, for which was Yom Kippur. They'd go up for the, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, and they would um, also go up for the Feast of Pentecost. And when they traveled from their homes up to Jerusalem, they would uh, pray these prayers, Psalms 121 through 134. Or 120 through 134. They'd pray these prayers together. And in a way, it was that their pilgrimage was actually shaping um, their their life. As God's people, they would read these and pray these as they, as they walked to Jerusalem. And you can only imagine that as they're walking three times a year to Jerusalem to have this experience of worship that may or may not be satisfactory... Um, wondering if they're questioning this, are they questioning, is God actually good? If he's there, um, how can I be so sure that he's there? Is this trek even worth it? Worth it? I've never actually experienced God in Jerusalem. Um, it's a lot of work going up there for such a little reward, you know. Maybe they looked at their neighbors who worshipped other gods, who worship practices were easier and didn't require such commitment, and wondering um, why can't we just do that? Why do we have to to trek up to Jerusalem? Um, is God even good? And um, how does God answer these pilgrims? Well, um, he points them to the anointed one. He actually points them to David. If you see in, in your bulletin, uh, I broke up the, the paragraphs. There's four, like, paragraphs in this. Four. And what it is is each of these has David's name in it. And what the, the psalmist is doing here is he's saying that the answer to our question is actually found in David. Um, all of the other Psalms of Ascent are really short. The one we read last week was three verses. This one is at least twice as long as all the other ones we've read, and um, the reason that it's so long is because it has such great importance that the author wants to draw us to see that hey, this is actually really important. Um, and this is because God takes our questions seriously. He um, he loves us, so he takes the time to answer us. He doesn't give us fortune cookie answers to our our deep longings. Um, he doesn't tell us to look for the silver lining. Doesn't tell us that everything works out in the end. Um, he doesn't tell us God helps those who help themselves. Uh, I actually took—I didn't take a BuzzFeed quiz today, but I did take a quiz online today that was called Joel Osteen or Fortune Cookie. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with Joel Osteen, he is a prosperity gospel preacher um, and is um, says some really awful things. And but this thing is—is is, is it from Joel Osteen or is it a uh, Fortune Cookie? So I want you to test you on this. All right, this is the first one. Happiness is not the absence of conflict, but the ability to cope with it. Osteen or fortune cookie? Cookie. Okay. You're not responsible for other people's happiness. You are responsible for your own happiness. Osteen. Yeah, it's hard to tell. Um, Avoid focusing on the negative aspects of the past. Cookie. It's a Cookie. Um, the best things in life aren't things. It's cookie. All right. So unlike fortune cookies, unlike Joel Osteen, um, God doesn't give us these pithy, uh, trite answers. But instead, He invites us to wrestle with Him in prayer. Um, and in this psalm, He's actually calling His people to remember. He's calling. He's calling His people. Excuse me. He's calling His people to call God to remember right? Look at the first verse, remember, O Lord. Now does this is kind of feel backwards. Like why would we call God to remember? If he's actually God, isn't he all knowing? Is it, is it possible for him to forget? Um, I'm amazed at our son Leo's memory. Uh, he, he says these things, he's four years old. And, um, he says like, daddy, remember when And he tells some story from when he was two that Mary Clark and I don't remember. Like, how do you remember this? Um, and uh, so we end up playing this game as a family. Maybe you played this it's not like a game, but dude this is a family growing up where you remember things together. Like Mary Clark and I will remember our first apartment. And we'll say, Remember when? And we tell these stories of when we were young and poor and lived in this apartment together in Richmond. Um and uh we do. I do it with my sisters. Like, remember when we were kids and um, we did this sort of thing? Today um, we were playing this with Mary Landon. Today is our daughter Mary Landon's. It's her second birthday, um, and so we were remembering her when she was born. And uh, so you remember when she was born? And Mary Clark said, "Yes, of course, I remember when she was born." Um, so it was an early morning. Um, we wake up. She's we're, Mary Clark's in labor. We drive to the hospital, and on the way there, there's actually a race going by like a a foot race. And so I roll down the window and yell out the window to the cop, officer, my wife is in labor. I felt so proud saying that and he stopped the race so that we could drive to the hospital. Um, Yeah. So Mary Landon was born in the hospital and not in our Subaru, uh, which is a good thing. So why do we do this? Why do we do this remembering together? Um, Well, there's something about remembering together that actually binds us together. There's a... a field of biology called interpersonal neurobiology. I don't know if you've all heard of this. Um, And it's it's the the study, what they're studying is they're finding that our brains, as they're doing this neuroscience, are actually changed in our reaction or in our relationships with other people. So interpersonal neurobiology. And that our minds are actually reshaped in community with other people. And it's these positive experiences, um, positive memories that bind us together. So God is inviting us to call him, to call him to remember that we might be drawn towards him in memory. And God calls to, um, us to remember, calls the Lord to remember two things specifically in these first five verses. It's to keep, remember King David and to remember the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Old Testament, I'm going to let you know who these are. So King David is the central character of the Old Testament. And specifically, um, we're being... We're being called to remember David's hardships. We're calling God to remember David's hardships and his vow. So his hardships. Um, David had an assassination attempt on his life 11 times. I mean, the the, the book, first and second Samuel read like the Godfather, if you ever get a chance to read it. I mean, it's amazing, uh, the mafia-like storyline of David's life. Um, and David's vow, he makes a vow here to not sleep. He actually says it four different ways in verses 3 through 5. Um, to not sleep until the ark is returned to Jerusalem. So what is the ark of the covenant? Um, the ark is, uh, in verse 6, it is the it. It's what the pronoun that's referring to is, is the ark of the covenant. Um, and the ark is a wooden box that was covered in gold Um, and inside Moses was instructed to build the box and to put the 10 commandments in it. And then it had this lid on it that had two cherubim, which are lions with the face of men with wings outstretched. And this was the mercy seat. And this sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Everything's covered in gold and God instructs his people that they're not to touch it. So he, um, these long bars are actually put in long wooden bars with gold overlaid on them that they would carry the Ark with. And God promises to his people that this is the place where he will meet with them and he will speak to them. And a, it is the symbol of God's presence with his people. So when Moses was leading the people through the wilderness, the ark was kept in this tent, which was the, called the tabernacle. And that's where they would go to meet with God. Um, and when Israel went into battle, the ark went first because that was signified that God was the one who was leading them into battle. And it was by faith that they were going to have victory. Um, I don't know if you all have seen Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, but there's this, this – the whole plot line is that Hitler is trying to get the Ark of the Covenant to lead the Nazi army um, into battle because of the thought that if he had it, they would win. And as you know, at the end, they end up opening the Ark, and the Nazi's face melts off. Do you guys remember that? The best scene for a 10-year-old in a PG movie out there is the face-melting Nazi. Um, So the Ark of the Covenant went into the battle with Israel Uh, is the place where God forgives sin. Um, Because the Bible tells the story of a holy God who desires to dwell with his people, but the obstacle to that dwelling is sin. So God in his grace provides the remedy. He sets up this sacrificial system so that sin can be dealt with so that he can dwell with his people and not destroy them. And this is what the mercy seat on the top of the ark was where the sacrifices were done. Was that it was, it's called the footstool here in this psalm? That it's if you can imagine God sitting on a giant throne and His feet resting on the footstool. The ark and specifically the mercy seat were the footstool. It's where His feet, where the God's, where the God's feet rested in their um, imagination. So God go, So um, so the ark is where God forgives sin. So David finds the ark and returns the ark. This is verse 6 and 7. Because the ark had been captured by the Philistines um, for 20 years. David goes and gets it and returns it to Jerusalem in joyful worship. And the psalm is drawing our attention to King David and his suffering, which secures the ark for his people. It's as if what God is saying, saying is, do you want to know how you can be certain that I'm good? I've given you a king, King David, who has suffered for you that he might secure my presence for you. And he makes a covenant with David. Look at verses 11 through 13. He promises that David will forever have a son on the throne so that God can dwell with his people forever. All right, I've been trying to find an illustration to illustrate what I'm going to say next. I'm going to try this. It might not work. Bear with me. Um, all right. Karate kid. And the karate kid... Uh, Mr. Miyagi teaches Daniel's son to wax his car, right? This is the most famous part of the movie, wax on, wax off. And he does this thing over and over again. He has no idea what it's for. And then, right, the the reveal is that Mr. Miyagi tries to hit him, and all he knows how to do is wax, and he he blocks the blow. And so he learns this, um, this karate move through this long process that he wasn't exactly sure what it was for. So in a similar way, not the same, in a similar way, the Old Testament tells the story of God pursuing, forgiving, and dwelling with his people to prepare them for Jesus. And sometimes it feels confusing and boring, kind of like waxing on and waxing off. Um, so, but the reason it does this, the reason why it prepares us, why we have the whole Old Testament, is so that when we look at Jesus, when we look at his death and his resurrection and the sinning of his spirit, we can read through the Old Testament and learn the deeper meaning of why he did what he did. And King David is the key figure of the Old Testament that points us to Jesus. So just as this psalm points Israel to David, it points the world to the one who sits on David's throne, who is Jesus Christ. So when we question God's goodness, he invites us to say, remember Jesus, to remember his hardships. Um, Jesus' entire life, his entire ministry was marked with the Jewish leaders trying to figure out how to kill him. And then they finally did. His suffering was greater than any man who has ever suffered because he suffered not for himself, but for the sins of the world. And it calls us to remember Jesus and to remember his vow that just as David promised that he would not sleep until he restored the ark to Jerusalem, Jesus made a similar vow. His work as king was to go to Jerusalem, to die for sin, to be raised from the dead so that in him all people from every tongue and tribe and nation might have their sins forgiven, their shame healed, and be ushered into God's presence. Well, how did Jesus do this? Romans 3.25, which is um, written on the front of your bulletin, um, says this. says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. A propitiation by his blood. What this word means is it's um, this Greek word, Hilasteron, which is the same word as mercy seat right so think of the ark of the covenant the word describing the place where the priests sacrificed to cleanse the sins of god's people is the word that's used to describe what jesus has done on the cross that jesus himself is the true mercy seat where forgiveness of sins happens What this is saying is that Jesus is the true Ark of the Covenant. He's the place where God delights to forgive sin so that he might dwell with us forever. So how do you know that God is good? Well, in Jesus, he's given you a king who offered up his life for you as a sacrifice for sins so that he might dwell with you forever. So finally, um, how do we receive this goodness for us? Um, In our doubts, in our questions, wondering if God is good. Uh, We read the Jesus Storybook Bible with our children. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's this beautiful Bible that's very simple, um, which is good for adults too, uh, to make sense of what what is the story that the Bible is telling. And the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, when it talks about Adam and Eve's um, disobedience and the sin uh, that enters the world because of it, um, the way it tells the story is it says that they believed the lie from Satan that God does not love you. They believed the lie from Satan that God does not love you, right? They believed the lie that God is not good. So how do we respond to this lie? Well, we ignore it, right? Um, We say that we believe, um, we believe the gospel. We say we believe in God, but we, we shut down the God conversation in our lives. Because to really have that conversation, I have to deal with my fears and my doubts and my shame, so how else do we deal with a lie? Well, we philosophize about it. Um, rather than dealing with God as he's revealed in Scripture, we try to reason our way through life. Right? Philosophy is meant to give us skills to interpret and understand things well, but not to be the foundation that we build our faith on. Another thing we do is superstition. Um, we look for proof that God is good in places that he hasn't promised to be good. Um, what I mean by this, when I was in high school, I saw the number 1134 everywhere. Well, not everywhere. Um, I saw it on clocks. And, um, and I saw it all the time, but not really all the time. I saw it twice a day. But I would, I, for whatever reason, I would see 1134 every time I looked at a clock at 1134. Um, and so I used to wonder, like, what is this? Is this a sign from God? Maybe this means he's trying to tell me something. Um, I think it might have just been OCD. Like, it might have just been me catching my eye at 1134, and I was trying to figure out what it was. Um, it, what it was, though, is it was my attempt to get certainty that God's goodness, to get certainty of God's goodness in a place other than where he's put it. Um, he has located his certainty, the certainty of his promises on the cross of Jesus. So let me tell you about my Sunday morning. Um, Mary Clark had gone to Rocky Mount to be with her parents. Um, I was at home with the kids reeling with this reality that uh, her parents' house had caught fire and um, knowing that much of 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 the house was destroyed. Um, and I believed the lie that God is not good. Now, I... I had it deeply buried in self-deception. Like, I don't think I would have said, or I wouldn't have said, God is not good. But it was it was buried deep. Um, and I actually spent Sunday morning crying. Um, I listened to a Sandra McCracken album. And if you want a good cry, listen to the Sandra McCracken album. Um, and these tears, and I was trying to make sense of them. It was because I was disoriented by the brokenness of life. Um, you know, my in-law's house had just burned down. Um, Our families, my family, Mary Clark's family are broken. Um, And I was weeping, not so much over the loss of what actually happened, but the loss of what I believed that my life should have been. For whatever reason, this tragedy triggered something in me. Um, Because eight years ago, when I was thinking about this, when Mary Clark and I moved to Richmond eight years ago and got married, um, I had this seed of hope, like the seed of possibility, right? We just gotten married, so exciting about a new marriage. Um, We just moved to a new city, excitement about the new city. We just got involved in a church plant, so a group of about 30 people who were were starting a church together. hope of new friendships i was going to go to seminary there are all these really exciting things that we could envision our future being grand and exciting maybe you do this too maybe this is how you started your time at wake all these hopes of the way things would be but then eight years later looking back um, i realized that my sadness is my sadness is sure that we left richmond but um, the deeper sadness is that my experience didn't line up with my hopes like, my life was not filled with um, everything exciting and everything wonderful. It was, exci- it was filled with um, friendships that were good, but also lots of loneliness. Um, a city that I ended up loving, but it was filled with um, deep brokenness. Um, our marriage has been fantastic, but um, anyone can tell you that being married to me is not a walk in the park. Mary Clark especially can tell you that. That... Um, Um, that there was just so much that um, we expected to be wonderful, and the actual experience of it was not what we had expected. Um, So then on Sunday, I went to church, and um, I I couldn't hold it together. I think I had a a single tear down my cheek, all church. Um, And the reason that that what happened, the reason I I was broken open, um, and what ended up happening in that was that God showed me that he was good, by showing me Jesus. Um, it was in the songs that we sang. Uh, we confessed our sin as a church and received assurance of pardon. It was um, taking communion. It was that God used all of these things to show me that He was good. Right? I remember walking these watching families walk to communion together, and the beauty of a family um, being knit together in the love of God uh, was a Picture for me of God's goodness that comes to us in and through Jesus alone. And people that I know in our church, that we've gotten to know that are filled with much sadness and much brokenness, who sang with full hearts to Jesus because they know the goodness of God to them in Christ. So, what about your Sunday morning? How did you wake up on Sunday that led you to believe the, law, the, believe the lie that God is not good? Maybe it's your loneliness. This idea that percolates in our minds that maybe we're going to be alone forever. Maybe you're overwhelmed with the amount of work that you have and you can't seem to get any joy. You're buried under the load. Um, maybe, it's, maybe this lie is stewing because of things that you've done. Right? You have shame and guilt uh, for sinning against others. Or maybe it's percolating because of the things that have been done to you. Um, shame and guilt for the way that somebody else has violated you. Maybe it's that your family is falling apart, and no one knows, um, and God is not holding your family together, and you feel like you can't tell anyone. Friends, Jesus died for you and was raised for you so that you might have proof that God is good and his goodness is for you. His resurrection is proof of this. It is the validation that he is king and that everything that he said and did is true. It's his vindication which tells us that he is the true king, that he has accomplished everything that he said he would accomplish. God's challenge to skeptics and challenge to our own hearts is to to provide a body. Christianity is the most easily falsifiable religion in the world. The Bible itself says this. If you produce Jesus' body, then the resurrection um, is a lie. Jesus is not God Your sins are not forgiven, and Christianity is a sham. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this clearly. And yet 2,000 years of archaeology has come to the same conclusion of the Bible and the church, that Jesus is risen and he is the true king. Our psalm tonight ends with a choice. Look at verse 18. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The choice before you is that you will either know Jesus as your king and be filled with joy as you receive him as the goodness of God to you. And his crown will shine in your heart as it does in heaven. Or you will leave clothed in shame as his enemy. Friends, this this is something that you must deal with yourselves. And Jesus says, come to me and I will not cast you out. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the goodness of God revealed to us. Thank you that you meet our questions, not with propositions, not with cookie, uh, fortune cookie answers, but with yourself. That you stepped into this world, um, that you took death into your body on the cross. And that you were raised from the dead so that we might know that you are good and be restored to you. Sins forgiven, restored to you. Uh, Help us, Lord, help us to believe this. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.